Be the Earth believes in a world that nurtures all beings. It works by boosting individuals and organisations driving a viable future, connecting funding and investing in regenerative economies that sustain life on Earth. Join this movement by subscribing to their newsletter. Visit betheearth.foundation. Hey, nice to have your company on the Dumbo Feather podcast. Elizabeth Sowen is unlocking the power of multi-solving for people and planet. A student of biology, she became fascinated with the interconnectedness of all things in a world that is often ready to simplify and separate. Climate change sat at the heart of those connections, leading her on a path to activism and co-founding Climate Interactive, a group that uses systems dynamics an approach to understanding the behaviour of complex systems, to drive meaningful and equitable climate action. This year, Elizabeth has moved on to a new role as director of the Multisolving Institute, which focuses on solutions that address the climate emergency while also improving health, well-being, equity and economic vitality. Elizabeth developed the idea of multisolving to help people see and create conditions for these win-win-win solutions. Earlier this year... She spoke with our contributor, Mike Bartlett, for our Systems Change issue of Down by Feather magazine. Could you explain to us what multi-solving is? Because it's a really fascinating idea. Multi-solving is the idea that you can use one investment of time or money or energy or political will to solve more than one problem at the same time. And so in that way, my grandmother was a multi-solver who could figure out how to stretch a dollar in six different directions. And a small farmer is a multi-solver. Indigenous people, to what I understand of their knowledge system, permaculture. So it's not a new way of thinking at all. And if anything, what I think we bring to it at the Multi-Solving Institute is, is saying in the space of climate change, equity, biodiversity, we really could do with more of that kind of thinking. Makes more sense through examples. So, for instance, if you were to close down a coal-fired power plant in a community, Mm -hmm. um, that is going to protect the climate for the long term. It will reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But for people living in the vicinity of that coal-fired power plant, there's going to be an immediate improvement in the air quality. And that means there's going to be an improvement in children who have asthma, people who have respiratory illnesses, people who are sick from work because of those respiratory illnesses. One thing you notice is there's two timescales in there. The climate improvement is over decades. The health and air quality improvements could be over weeks or months. I want to touch something you mentioned at the beginning there, that this is quite an old idea. And I've just read English Pastoral by James Rebanks. One of the themes in that is previously farming worked so that the livestock, for example, fertilised the soil, which grew the grain for livestock, and all these different kinds of farming were working together. Whereas modern farming has that siloing process, people have been forced to specialise and you just look at everything in isolation. So do you think that's quite a modern viewpoint that we don't see how things fit together anymore? Yeah, I would say this is a legacy of the ways of thinking that are at the root of so many problems we face. I would draw connections to the past 500 years of empire and colonialism genocide and slavery and extractive economics, whether that's mining or logging or overfishing or extracting fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Those ideas make sense 
within a worldview that doesn't pay attention to feedback loops and to cycles and to closed loops, like you're mentioning with thinking about farming as a closed loop system versus an extractive system. And so multi-solving, on one hand, it's practical as people doing things like bike paths and rain gardens and green roofs and insulated homes. But at its more fundamental level, it's challenging this worldview of separation and domination. And it's saying the planet works through cycles, it works through collaboration, and the humans need to fit their economies and their societies into that paradigm of webs of relationship as opposed to hierarchies of power and domination. Right. Yeah. The field that our work comes out of, we think often about the boundaries of a system. Science tells us there are virtually no boundaries between me and the atmosphere every time I take a breath. What was atmosphere becomes me. What was me becomes atmosphere. When I bite an apple, what was apple becomes me. It used to be rainwater and sun not long before that. We understand that, and yet we inhabit political governance, economic community systems that fly in the face of that all the time. There was just a crisis in the state of Maine, so two states away from where I live. 30 years ago, there was a program to take municipal sludge from sewage treatment and handed that out for free to farmers who put it across their land. And it was contaminated with this persistent pollutant, PFAS. So now they don't know the extent of this, possibly thousands of acres now being managed as organic farms by young organic farming families. The food they're producing is actually a health hazard. They have to pull it off the shelves. No one knows what will happen to the children whose parents were pregnant on this land, the people who've eaten their food. And so that's an example of this breaking of feedback loops. There is no way, but the systems that we've designed pretend that everything is a way. When we buy gasoline at the pump, we pretend that the people in the Niger Delta are away and that they have nothing to do with us. Yet we know both the violence and the ecological harm that happens at these sites of extraction. The systems that we're in now can't work without this fiction of an away. They're designed around it. Those are all the things that aren't on the ledgers. Why is the oil industry the most profitable industry in the history of the planet? Because we don't count the costs, right? Right. People and ecosystems bear the costs, but Exxon doesn't pay the cost of all that damage. Multi-solving is trying to address that really egregious misfit between how the world operates and how this one strain of humanity, colonist empire, tracing back to Europe in many cases, designed a worldview that was self-serving and appeared to work for a little while. But it's like a guy jumping out of a building And as he passes the 39th floor, someone says, how are you doing? He says, great, so far. That's what this joyride of (laughs) empire has been like. And my children and your children are getting very close to hitting the ground. I like this idea of a way that there's the real world and there's the rest of the world. We feed off the rest of the world or we send all the stuff we don't want out into the away. So we're still operating within that colonial mindset. Yeah, and we can each name a handful of billionaires who think that the next away is going to be Mars or space asteroids for minerals. It's a continuation to imagine a dead Earth, but humanity being okay in some other away. There is no away. You've mentioned feedback loops a couple of times. It sounds like quite a complex term. How would you describe a feedback loop for someone who wasn't familiar? We talk about two ways of thinking about causation. One is linear. A causes B. In the dominant culture, that is also the dominant way of thinking. The other way, though, and the way that better represents how the world really operates is circular causation. 
A causes B, but a change in B often feeds back to cause a change in A. There's a famous cartoon that we use to teach about system thinking, which is a guy sitting in a little chair surrounded by dominoes that are stacked up in a circle. So he kicks one with his foot. As those dominoes fall, they're going to eventually come and smash him. Right. That's an example of a feedback loop. I've seen you talk about that the only way that this system can sustain itself as it is, is to ignore all the distress that it's causing, that those in power have to pretend that they're not hurting others or our world or even themselves. Every climate disaster is evidence of those feedback loops. There isn't any escape from feedback if you're embedded in a larger system. It really is a shell game, a pretending. One challenge, we've been talking a little bit about timescales, right, is that some of these feedback loops are quite slow compared to the feedback loops designed in our systems, right? We look at quarterly profits, or a politician might have a term of office of two or four or six years. Climate change operates over decades. And so the consequences of that for biodiversity or climate or health come long after they've left office. How do we build in the feedback so that people feel the responsibilities of those decisions is another part of multi-solving. Sometimes I use the word carbon-centric to mean that the decisions are really focused on CO2, which is important. There's no way to address climate change without facing CO2. It's crucially important, but it's only part of the picture. What I thought within the climate talk, they felt constrained. They couldn't go as far as what the science that I was there to deliver was saying, you know, was needed to meet the goals they'd all agreed to. They'd all mm-hmm. agreed to targets like limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. Our job as a team of scientists was to add up what they were all offering, hold up a mirror and say, great, you made some offers. It's better than nothing, but this is not enough for your goal. You got to dig deeper. But digging deeper sounded expensive. We'll need to have all this new energy infrastructure. We'll have to change transportation. That sounds like spending. But at the same time, people were starting to understand that there were actually incredible benefits that had nothing to do with climate that would also happen if they dug deep and made these further steps to get off of fossil fuels. We're talking about 2009, 2010. By 2018, the World Health Organization came out with a study that said the cost of meeting those Paris goals, all that work to change the energy system, transportation system, would be more than outweighed by the health savings. You have energy and environment ministers at the UN talks saying this is so expensive. Health ministers aren't at the talk saying on our side, there's fewer hospitalizations, there's fewer missed days of work, there's fewer premature deaths. There's whole communities of researchers and advocates who are working on air pollution, which is where most of those health savings are coming from. And then there's others who are working on chronic disease and access to physical activity. If you have to make a city more walkable and bikeable, the health benefits of that are incredible. Multi-solving is about trying to rearrange how we make these decisions to navigate for the good of the whole system instead of just the parts. I think it's an amazing perspective to sort of step back and see the bigger picture. When you start thinking about addressing something like climate change, there's a sort of sense of helplessness. It's simply too big. The way that you talk about these systems means that complexity and that difficulty is actually the strength. It's about building the connections. Yeah, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that multi-solving rewires systems. You know, we talk about our nervous systems rewiring. Yeah. Well, we can do that with our social systems. If we start to have the public health department and the transportation department working together, 
There's personal relationships that get built. There's shared understanding. They start to harmonize how they're making decisions. The immediate result might be a park or a cycleway, but the other trace that's left behind is a changed system, right? A rewired system that's more intelligent and more connected. All of this multi-solving we need to do, of course, is happening against the backdrop of instability. We know climate impacts are hammering people all over the world. A rewired system that's more resilient and more able to figure out what needs to happen in these moments of crisis and is more able to reorient itself when something changes. Some of the cities I work in, we had small grants programs with this multi-solving lens, and the pandemic hit, and it was really awe-inspiring to see how those programs could pivot. One example was a project that was meant to be about beautifying a park. Uh, Instead, what they ended up doing was helping senior citizens in the neighborhood get their phones to be able to use Zoom and log on to get information that they needed because they were all locked down. There's something fluid and flexible about networks, I think, is also part of why multi-solving is really where we need to invest now, because we don't know the future. It's, It's unpredictable and more unstable, but it's always a good bet in my mind to invest in networks and relationships within all of this complexity. Do you see multi-solving as a way to amplify voices that have been historically left out of the discussions? Maybe almost flip it. Multi-solving cannot happen without attention to that dimension of historical inequity and structural inequity. Each kind of structural oppression that you might look at in a society, that essentially is saying we can ignore feedback from certain groups of people. It's saying that a powerful white elite in this country can make decisions in their interest and really not have to take into account the harm of this community that lives near an oil refinery. So to make systems healthier, you have to restore feedback. And if those feedback loops have been broken because of misuse of power, justified by different narratives of white supremacy or patriarchy, which are just stories that say it's okay to ignore certain types of feedback, then you can't make systems healthy without grappling with and changing both how that's enshrined in policy and in the built environment, but also in people's minds and cultures and beliefs. We all are products of the societies that we're in. And until we really examine and challenge those worldviews, we unconsciously just perpetuate them. Many people might say that structural inequities are baked into the system. There's certainly a push to sort of just smash the system. Do you think it's possible to rewire it in the way that you've talked about to make it a more positive system? What I've come to believe is that we can't create the climate safety and the ecological safety that is needed, at least for thriving and possibly for surviving, Mm -hmm. without also disrupting these other worldviews like patriarchy and white supremacy. Here in the U.S., at the same time, we were having a couple different movements. We were having Me Too, which was about misogyny and abuse of women. Mm -hmm. And we were having Black Lives Matter, which was about racial injustice. And Water is Life, which was about indigenous rights and climate and the environment. Mm -hmm. These were all happening at the same time, and they all had the same feeling. And I started to realize that each of these is a pattern that some part of the system matters more than others. And each of them based on this twisted idea of some kind of supremacy. And then I started seeing political cartoons about it. The picture of the earth with a black eye with a sign saying me too. I was like, yeah, people are getting that 
That's part of why I say we can't successfully just tackle climate change because they reinforce each other, they justify each other, and the only way out of one of them is out of all of them. Is there a sense of when you solved one problem and realize you've created another one? Does that put people off actually engaging with issues? Is there a danger that nothing happens because we're worried about upsetting a part of the system that we hadn't really thought about previously? Well, that often is a fear and a reason to not work together across sectors or across mm-hmm. cultures or, or racial groups. But I believe it's an illusion. It's another example of saying we don't have to worry about the feedback. For a little while, we could move fast. We all look like each other. We all have the same beliefs. We could get to agreement really quickly. But then, inevitably, we build the new infrastructure and people hate it. Or we try to build a new infrastructure and people protest it and we're caught up in court for two or three years. So there's an illusion that there's a fast path through this complexity. What I see in practice is that it's not as fast as it might seem. We should talk maybe about the obstacles to multi-solving. Everything we've been saying, it makes so much sense. Why isn't there more of it? This point you're naming is one of the obstacles. It's perceived as though it will be slow or it will get bogged down. It's not controllable. Multi-solving says you put your faith in rewiring the system. And if you've done that well, then you will move towards your goals of the well-being of everyone involved. But it may not look the way that you thought it would be, and no one single interest is going to dominate or control the outcome. So there is a balance of letting go of control, and the return for that is more power to actually make change. Because you have a bigger group of people, you've aligned more interests, you might have a bigger budget, and there's more uncertainty. But certainty is an illusion anyways. People are grabbing onto it with their fingernails, but it actually doesn't exist. I did want to talk to you about that because I saw you say on Twitter that you trust the predictions of people who have no idea what's going to happen. The, the uncertainty is yeah. so great with all these tipping points we're approaching. I mean, how do you personally live with that kind of uncertainty? So by personality, I like control. I like schedules and plans. Okay. So I'm not saying this because I have a personality that is like free-flowing, but I've been trained in systems theory for 30 years now. I've built computer simulations of the global climate, and what you learn when you deal with that kind of complexity is that it is not controllable. Systems are emergent. Their behavior changes when new connections are made. They're nonlinear. Certainty and control is on the positive side as well. We think that means, oh, bad things are going to happen and we won't know about them. Sure. But it also means amazing things could happen and we're not going to know about them. So I guess by nature, I like certainty as much as the next person. My field of study has shown me that mostly that's an illusion. And my practice has shown me that you can rely on the direction. It's just the specifics that is out of your control. Okay. So your background is in biology. Did you see yourself becoming that spokesperson? Did you see yourself becoming that activist? The through line that I would name is systems theory. And although biology, so I studied neurogenetics, I did make a big leap in terms of my training. After my PhD, I came to work for Danella Meadows, who was the, one of the founders of applying systems theory to sustainability. The neurogenetics I was studying was the nervous system of a soil nematode, and we were making wiring diagrams. So I think it's really interesting that now I'm talking to you about rewiring systems because we were studying learning and the rewiring of connections between the cells of this organism. 
And I loved that research. But in my spare time, I was volunteering for groups that were focused on peace and nuclear disarmament and environmental sustainability. So this would have been like the late 80s, early 90s. A lot of my PhD research I did in the dark. I did a lot of microscopy that had to be in the dark at barely above freezing for the comfort of the organism. You talk about literally um, in the dark, metaphorically, right? (laughs) (laughs) As any PhD thesis is, you're stumbling around in the dark, but also... Literally in the dark, by myself, with a jacket on a lot of the time. Three quarters of the way through the PhD, I just had this moment where I realized there was about three other people on Earth who really understood my very arcane research topic. And yet, at night and on the weekends, I was doing my little part to build awareness about nuclear war and environmental sustainability. I decided to not keep doing academic science but mm-hmm. to find some way to work on sustainability. The man who was my boyfriend at the time, he's now my husband of many years, he and I were both biologists and we were making this video called The Living System. And this was like you had to go to a studio to record a video. And so we had a VHS tape of us being very professorial, talking about what you and I started talking about, closed loop systems and how all their loads of nutrients. And if we break those, cycles, how dangerous that is. And Phil is my husband's name. He said, there's this really inspiring woman at Dartmouth College named Danella Meadows. And I think she'd have something to say that could improve our video. I was like, you can't show that to her. It's so amateurish and she's world famous. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. And I was going back and forth to Boston for my research. While I was away, he just went and showed the video to Danella Meadows anyways. And she was like, this is fantastic. You need to keep developing this. This is really important and needed. So that gave us a little shot of confidence, but it also started a friendship with her. And a couple years after that, she founded a research institute called the Sustainability Institute. And she hired us to build computer models of complex systems. So Mm -hmm. that was the transition for me, which would never have happened if Phil hadn't been braver than me. And then she became my mentor for many years, and I watched her greet many young people, and whatever they brought to her, it was always, this is fantastic, this is so important, the world needs you to do this. So that was her stock answer to anyone who brought her anything, but it was enough to change my life. She had a vision of an organic farm and an intentional community that were tied to the Research Institute. We became founding members of that community. Our two kids were born and raised here. Okay. Yeah, that shares a forest, a working organic farm with cheese making and chickens and as much green technology as we could afford at the time. We just managed to get solar panels for most of our electricity. We've always had composting toilets and super insulated passive house construction. And, you know, our own, certainly not perfect, but attempt to live in a way that would fit into these cycles that we've been talking about this whole conversation. So you've absolutely been living the cause that you are spruiking. Well, at least one version of it. I mean, there needs to be as many versions as there are people. We ended up living the rural agricultural version of it. There are city versions of it that people are living all over the world that are closed and very efficient. Our experiment is also one in collective governance. So we make all the decisions for our community by consensus which has taught me a lot. And it's fascinating to move a bit back and forth between 23 families and 190 countries, each operating by consensus. Same problems of human beings trying to balance collective interest and individual interest, doing that more or less gracefully. You're involved with Climate Interactive, a company that you co-founded for the past decade. What were you hoping to achieve with them? I think there's a couple things to highlight. 
One, I think of as democratizing climate science, particularly when Climate Interactive started. You could have a question about some intervention in the climate system. And if you were at a university, you could get an answer to that. Maybe not right away, but within days. If you were at a, a government in a wealthy country, you would have a university or two at your disposal. So you could ask questions like, what if the European Union cut their emissions in half by 2030? Or what if China reduced their emissions 2% per year? But if you were a Greenpeace activist or like a high school teacher, or maybe you came from a country without you know, climate modelers in your own universities, it was much harder to get those answers. So one of the objectives of Climate Interactive was to just give that ability to more people. Everybody deserves to understand how the climate system works and what we need to do to reach a safe path. The second thing is inspired by some of our mentors in this field who say that research shows that research doesn't convince people. Right. And what he means by that is that we learn when we get to frame our own questions and test the answers, as opposed to when someone tells us the answers. Absolutely. So yeah. the second thing about climate interactive simulations is they're designed to be very interactive, where a user can ask their own questions and get very quick feedback. What if country X did such and such? Or what if all the buildings in the world were twice as energy efficient? Or what if we replaced everything with electric vehicles? How much difference would that make? So inventing that ability for people to just ask those what if questions. Another thing that these tools do is give you in a matter of fractions of a second an insight into the 100-year future. The output of the simulations go to 2100 or beyond. And so this thing that we say is lacking, how policymakers are not held accountable to the 100-year future, decisions are framed around the next quarter. These tools are one effort to extend the time horizons of decision makers. In the early days, we were one of the first groups who could do this adding up of pledges. And so particularly in Copenhagen, we were staying up all night to run an analysis. We would hand it to someone who's sort of an ambassador bridge between the science and the political community. And he would hand it to President Obama's science advisor who would carry it to President Obama. Mm -hmm. For a bunch of four or five geeky MIT graduates to see their research being in the hands of people who could make a difference with it was a pretty amazing feeling. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. And as we discussed, of course, it didn't accomplish what we really wanted. We wanted to see Copenhagen with a better result. I had little babies at home at the time. It felt like I was there on their behalf. So that was also really disappointing. What I learned was that pointing out a gap isn't enough to close a gap. I try and kind of bring myself back to what my mental model was of what we thought we were doing. There was some innocence, I guess. The scientists will say, you're not on track. The governments will say, thank you for telling us that we're not on track and now we'll get on track. That was a hard lesson and now it sounds a little naive, but I think part of me did believe that at the time. There have been a few moments in my life where I've moved into higher profile places than I ever expected to be yeah. and realized the people who are in charge don't have all the answers. In fact, they don't even have all the information and they may be as afraid and confused and trapped as the rest of us. Mm. We talked about obstacles before. It is one of the obstacles with climate change that there just isn't a sense of a comprehensive vision. There's a great focus on how things could go wrong, but not enough of a focus on what a sustainable future might actually look like. I've heard it said, and I think this is true, that it's easier for many of us to imagine a dystopian future than imagine changing our economic system right. to give us a future that we really would want to have. 
A lot of our art and film feed us that dystopian future. It is actually a body of work to cultivate a different vision of what's possible. I think that's one reason I'm really grateful to have ended up living the way I do and where we do. By no means do I mean that as I live in the utopian future. But there are things that are part of this world we need to create to go and pick the strawberries for your breakfast from right outside and then take a nice warm shower from your solar hot water tanks. I forget sometimes that many people don't have the luxury of just experiential understanding that this world we're talking about isn't a big sacrifice in many ways better for our bodies and our hearts. I say now that my own kids are grown up, this is a multi-generational community. There's a new crop of babies, toddlers, high school students. I realize again that that's a luxury to live in that kind of a connected way. It sounds idyllic to me. Having had that lived experience, do you feel that you have a clear vision of what our sustainable future could look like? That's really tricky. When I was younger, I probably would have said yes and spewed it out for you. What I would say now is that this future needs to be created by so many people who are so different from me. People of every generation, every ethnicity, all these different lived experiences. And I'm not dodging dodging your question. (laughs) I didn't think that was a cop out at all. But it does touch on, I suppose, one of the other potential obstacles, which is, you know, so much of what we've talked about is building connections, about bringing people in. It's driven by empathy, caring about other people enough to make a sacrifice. You mentioned Obama before, and I know that he spoke about one of the problems of our time being what he called the empathy deficit. Do you think there's enough empathy around to actually make a sustainable future possible? This would be a funny answer, maybe. I'm surprising myself a little bit by it, but... I don't think it's empathy that we're going to tap. I think it's frustration. And the reason I say that is that the thing that I see bringing people to the table to these multi-solving projects I've observed is often frustration that people can't accomplish what they see as possible from within their silos. One example was a guy whose job was designing parks. He told us that he had seen how parks were actually causing displacement of people from the neighborhood. And he was like, I don't know housing. I'm not an affordable housing expert. I can't do my job and not do harm without being connected to someone who's in some other part of the system. One question we asked people in one multi-solving project was, talk about a time when your work required you to do something that was opposed to your personal values. And it was amazing that's the pain that people expressed. One person was environmental regulator who knew something was unsafe, but the regulation said it wasn't his place to alert people about it. I guess maybe I am coming around to empathy, even though I started with frustration, (laughs) because that does sound a lot like empathy. Um, I think that many of the systems we're forced to live with and work within are out of alignment with people's basic impulses. And I think that's incredibly painful. Part of the epidemic of numbness that we see people just tired, exhausted, distracting themselves in different ways is an expression of that. It's very painful to be forced for your survival, sometimes literally to put food on the table for Mm. your family, to do things that are contrary to what you know is best. And I think there's a lot of energy to be unlocked by providing people the opportunity to align those two things better. It's interesting you chose that word frustration because to me it sounded like that's what had sort of tipped you towards multi-solving. It was the frustration at COP15 not being able to get the ball rolling or to reach the targets that were required. Is it frustration that's still driving you? My first answer was going to be no. No, I'm pulled by a vision. I was going to say, 
Yeah, frustration and fury, to be honest. It is ridiculous that I've been working my whole career and that the scientific warnings have been clear for so freaking long and that so many people are in harm's way today and so much of the loss is irreversible. Before we get to a pandemic where almost a million people in my country have died and the impacts are skewed so unjustly on poor people and people of color. There's no need for it. There's no reason for it. We have the technologies that we need to meet our climate targets. We've been talking about how it will pay for itself and the co-benefits of health and jobs sure. and well-being. So, yeah, I'm actually furious that, mm. that it, things are the way they are. And this is the best avenue that I see to counteract the very small number of people, really, the small vested interests that are holding things locked in this really dangerous way. For so, yeah, I guess I am frustrated. I think there are so many people out there that feel that frustration and feel that fury for those individuals that do feel like that, that really are determined to bring about meaningful change. How do they start? Where do you see the way forward? Well, there's another amazing thing about multi-solving. Climate change touches everything. So you don't need to go re-educate yourself to be a climate scientist. We actually have plenty of them and they're doing a great job. You curate an art museum. Well, can that building be as energy efficient as possible? And can you be transparent about that process for all the people who come to view art to see what you're doing? You're a health journalist. Well, can you start to tell the stories about where health intersects with climate? Within communities, the thing I tell people to do is identify the problem that keeps them up at night and then figure out who else has a problem that intersects with that problem. In one city, I was there for the moment when the person who led the Children's Asthma Coalition met the person who led the Riverkeeper Alliance, and they figured out that greening the city was actually a solution both to the quality of water in the watershed and the health of the children who were threatened with asthma. That's an example of you can start anywhere, and if you trace your way upstream, you might be surprised by the allies that you find. Said a lot of people who might be really worried, afraid. So maybe I would just say a few words about what's helped me with that. Particularly earlier in my career, about the same time that Al Gore was going around the U.S. with his slideshow about climate change, I had my own slideshow about climate change, which was not as polished and didn't get the attention, but I was doing what I could. I was going to things like church basements and libraries. And for many people who I talked with, this was the first time that someone had really told them what was up and what was at stake. People were shocked. I made people cry. People left the room. It was really hard for them to handle. Of course, that was not the result I was trying to get. I was trying to mobilize people so that we could do something about these problems. So I actually took a sabbatical for a year. I said, I'm not going to do this until I can understand how to not create this reaction of paralysis, fear. And so that led me to the work of Joanna Macy, who I would just point people towards. One thing that Joanna taught me is that you can't tamp down your sadness, rage, and grief about climate disaster, for instance, without also tamping down your possibility for joy and hope and love. You can have it all on or all off, but you can't pick and choose. So to be effective, Joanna taught me, you have to experience what in my culture we consider these negative emotions, Mm -hmm. anger, fear, sadness. Not all cultures do that, but the one I grew up in does. You have to learn that they pass through you. They're not a permanent state of being, and you'll go through cycles of them. 
I guess what I learned was I was probably having that paralytic effect on people because I had my own unprocessed anger and grief about climate change and about my tiny little children at the time. Sure. Um, I think we do this work of feeling our feelings. They're an intelligence, an animal whose life support system is under dire threat that didn't feel afraid. You would say there would be something wrong with that animal. These emotions actually are telling us something and we can handle them. We can experience them and we can also let them go in order to experience the other it's also true while we are facing extreme danger, it's an incredibly beautiful planet and we are living lives here that we deserve to have happiness and joy in the midst of the fear and the anger. I think that's a great perspective to take. We talked about frustrations. What's something you're optimistic about in 2022? I tend not to think about optimism. Okay. And sometimes people ask me about hope. I focus on action. I know that I'm committed to action. I just launched a new institute. I have colleagues who are super committed to action. I have funders who are committed mm -hmm. to action. And I know that action combined with connection, right, this rewiring of networks, transforms systems. From a systems point of view, the way you change the behavior of a system is you change the connections within the system. The connections of a system are what give rise to its behavior. And the only way to change the behavior is to change the connection. Sometimes that's flows of information. Sometimes it's flows of caring, flows of love, which is really just caring about the well-being of some other part of the system. Mm -hmm. And so those two things together unlock transformation. You know, we were talking about frustration. We were talking about my whole career, this problem not yielding, whether it's climate change or biodiversity loss or inequity. Mm -hmm. None of these problems are yielding. It doesn't appear to me that incremental change is going to get us where we need to be. Systems can change slowly and gradually, or they can flip into new states. With the short time that we have and the pressures on us, that's what we need to be working toward is that push toward transformation. I don't want it to sound like I think climate change is a good thing, but I would say the earth is activated. The earth is energized. That's putting our human systems under stress and systems under stress change. Think of a physical system that buckles. Our economic systems, our political systems are showing the stresses. So in this way of thinking about moments of opportunity, you don't know where they will be or who's going to find themselves there. Those moments of opportunity are going to start coming faster and more furious just because the systems are under more stress. And so the no regrets course of action that I see is to be prepared to be as clear as possible about your values, to be as clear as possible about the vision that you want to see, and to link hands with as many people across as many diverse boundaries as you can. So I guess that's my version of optimism is like being prepared for we don't know what, but we know it's going to be change. You can learn more about Elizabeth's work over at multisolving.org and immerse in more stories and conversations about systems change in our March issue of Dumbo Feather magazine. Our editors on the podcast are Cheshire Audio and Yaga. We make our work on the lands of the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nations. I'll be back with you in two weeks' time for our next episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast. Impact Investments and Philanthropy for a world that nurtures all beings. Be the Earth Foundation. Visit be the earth .foundation and subscribe to their newsletter.